And this is a special episode of In Conversation With. I'm Brandon. And I'm Kathleen. So today we were lucky enough to sit down with Paul Mason, who is a media personality, an uh, author, a broadcaster, and he has a couple of things he wanted to tell us. We interviewed him in a very busy cafe, but I have to tell you, this will be interesting. Give this a listen. Okay, so we're joined by Paul Mason, he's a journalist, political commentator, he's on the radio, he's a bit of a jack-of-all-trades really when it comes to politics. Nice to see you today. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to be in Brighton. Yeah. Uh, I have been coming for 40 years on political manoeuvres and uh, it's getting stranger. (laughs) It's getting stranger, why do you say that? I've been reminiscing um, today about, so literally in the early 80s, I was on the left, I mean, the far left of Labour. And these hotels that we're inhabiting, the Metropole, the Grand, which of course got blown up, um, the, the Juries, which was, which was now is a shithole, but it's, sorry, I shouldn't say that. It's not, it's not <laughs> no, as no, nice, no, it's, it's not, it's no, not it's as nice as the Grand. No, no, we encourage original yeah. opinions on the left wing. It's not as nice as the Grand, but it was once the conference hotel. And I can remember, you know, we were on the left. It was, there was a battle over the future of the Labour Party, which ended, ended up with the expulsion of the left. Um, but while you were discussing, you know, you were in the bar, everybody was knocking back pints. It was a very male atmosphere at those t- in those days. Classic. Uh, yeah, and, but also uh, very... I've been watching a documentary about it, and there's no women in it. All right? that's, that's what how male it is. It was a world in action or something. And you're on the bar with trade union officials, and he's, he's you know, the classic trade union official guy. And, but you, we argued with each other on the basis of a common culture, which was that working class culture that went to war in the miners strike, the print strike, the steel strike before it, and a common set of assumptions that this is the only lifeboat we have, this, this Labour Party, the struggle over it is intense, and there was really nowhere else for anyone to go. And so now what's happened is that there are, you know, I still think it's the only lifeboat, but, but there's two sets of people who can't live with each other in it, in a way that even though people will point back to the expulsion of militant, that wasn't, it wasn't like the bell, book and candle expulsion. Yes, yeah. it got them out of power, but in trade union branches, they were still there. They were still, to all intents and purposes, labourites. Mm. And these, that common culture, of course, the working class culture has gone, so that we can't share that. And then there are other places to go. There's the Greens, and in Scotland, there's the SNP. And so suddenly, you... The, the atmosphere at this conference, it's the first time in the post-2019 era that I've, it's really dawned on me that we, are, the, we might be seeing the emergence of two parties. Um, it's like, that's like heresy to say that. It's heresy for the far left because they want to control Labour. It's also really, in their inner being, the kind of Starmer and Blairite and old right crew, I think they would fi- find it as heresy because they know that if... The, the serious left, the SCG and everybody else, did get together and form a separate party, then the energies that are currently going to the Greens, in some constituencies, 10% of votes, would flow into that. And then you're in business. 
I don't advocate a separate party. I really want to avoid it. But I'm looking at these two worlds, these warring tribes, and, I'm, and there's almost nothing in common between them, politically or socially. But because of your career, you and the work you've done previously, you understand and have connections in both of those separate camps that you were talking about. And one of the things, you know, you endorsed Keir Starmer for Labour leader, that was seen as quite, I think, original and controversial by a lot of people. And I think you've got, rightly or wrongly, you've got a lot of flack for that in the past couple yeah, of I mean, weeks I, months. I, I've, I've continually, ex and of course, no, I think the deal I thought we had is more or less expired. Um, mm. We could come to that. But I, just let me explain what I, what I was trying to do. Mm. Corbynism failed, okay, and I wrote a little pamphlet saying Corbynism has failed and here's why it has failed. Now, Corb for me, the high watermark of Corbynism was 2017 anyway. That's where people were prepared to give us the benefit of the doubt. Lots of things went wrong, went wrong between 2017 and 2019. Manifesto was overambitious. Um, the, there was a huge struggle going on at all times inside that corner of Parliament where Corbyn and Macdonald sat. There was just a huge power struggle uh, in which people like me were getting you know, booted off shortlisted, cold shoulders out of meetings, excluded, all the rest of it. That's just within Corbynism. And then on top of that, there's Brexit. Brexit. Part of the left wanted Brexit. Part of the left doesn't like free movement. Uh, whisper it loudly. Part of the left doesn't really like trans rights. And that, and that was always sort of digging away at what Corbynism was. Now, so I thought, right, this has the power to fly apart. The whole thing has the power to turn into a shit, shit show. Um, the first thing that we really, and throughout 2019 we were trying to stop, was the departure of not nine people into the TIG. The, 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 the change the, independent group, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, but 50. That could easily have happened. And you know, because you were, like me, involved in that movement, how, how intent those Blairites were on taking a new party out of the right wing of the Labour Party. One of my aims was to stop that. But the, a, a bigger aim was to try and say, politics is now so fragmented. Progressive politics in Britain is fragmented between the progressive nationalists, Plaid and the SNP, the Greens, parts of Lib Dems, Labour, and that centrist dad milieu that can't find a home, but it's really huge. Small L liberalism, you know, Ian Dunn political and all the rest of it. Yes. Um, that we may only be able to form a progressive government if it is an alliance. In fact, it's not may, we will only be able to form a progressive government if it's an alliance. The only question is, does Labour assemble the alliance inside the vessel called, or the lifeboat called Labour, or does Labour retreat to becoming something more sort of solid, either a left party or, as more likely, a Blairite right-wing social democratic party, and then it forms the centre of an actual cross-party alliance. I think, I don't know what you two think, but I think that's the only question in British politics. And my choice was at the time, right, well, let's do A. Let's try and make Labour into a far more assertive and explicit alliance between the centre, the left and the right, who would you pick to do that? Not somebody who's sitting there saying, Corbyn did everything right. Absolutely not. Would you want the right to, to be leading it? No. So it would be either 
in my ideal, ideal version, Clive Lewis. I tried to get him on the ballot paper. The left didn't want him on the ballot paper. Okay, we take the point. We take the hint. You don't want a remainer on the, uh, an arch remainer on your ballot paper. Uh, despite all the, all the inclusivity issues that you might have uh, solved by that. Um, okay, so, right, well, the next person from the Corbyn era who looks pro plausible is the soft left guy, Keir Starmer. But the problem with Keir always was, and we said it at the time, he hasn't got an ism, and he hasn't got still, he hasn't yeah. got a machine. Yeah. So, so one of the things exactly. So one of the things that we've been vox popping, walking around, chatting to uh, the left wingers, but just people who don't even know us, is you know what is what is Starmerism? And if, and I, I, we were saying the other day, you know, we've got to go on the doorsteps in May and chat to people, and we've got to answer we've got to answer a question: what is Starmer, what is Starmerism? And I can tell you what Blairism is, whether I agree with it or not, is something completely different. Yeah. I can tell you what Corbynism is, whether I agree with it or not, is something completely different. And I think. And hopefully, obviously, it's worth noting, we're recording this on the Tuesday and tomorrow is Wednesday where Keir will speak in front of the nation and our, and our party. And maybe he might begin to answer that question, but he's been in power for almost, almost two years and hasn't actually done that now. Well, here's the reason why I confidently predict he won't answer that question. Because I've read that bloody 1,400 word, what, what is it, 4,000? <laughs> I actually read part of it as well. 14,000 word um, essay, and it doesn't answer the, the question as in, like when you're doing your A-levels and your teacher writes, this doesn't answer the yes. question. You know, a -level, an A-level essay is meant to be analyse the problem, give an acute and succinct uh, account of, of the pros and cons of different solutions, tell us what your solution is and situate it within the Western political tradition of are you a socialist, are you a liberal, are you a conservative, a communitarian, a monarchist? Tell, just tell us what you are. And none of that it happens. And... The, the reason for this is not some bad faith by Starmer. I think there's a sociological reason. Like me, he spent a huge part of his adult life in a profession where you can't be political. And no matter how hard you try to maintain, you know, it's like if you're a cricketer and you were once good when you were 21 and you come back to it when you're 56, you know, you're just, you've got a lot to relearn. Um, the, but that's the sociological reason. The other reason is because the old problem that goes right back to what Leon Trotsky wrote about the Labour left in the 1920s during the general strike period. They don't know what they want. They, what, what they want is, a is always a triangulation between what the far left wants, or the Bolshevism in, in the case of the 20s, um, and what the pro-capitalist liberal right. Because let's remember one thing. I think a lot of people at TWT and Labour... Uh, socialists forget large parts of the labour tradition are liberalism. We have, and why? Not just because we had Ramsay, Ramsay MacDonald, we originated as a left liberal party, but because large numbers of modern workers, above all the salariat, you know, the white collar, you know, salaried worker, are intrinsically liberal rather than socialist in their consciousness. Right. So, so you, you've got. You've got the, the kind of, we said, those of us on the left, me, Laura Parker, Tom Cabassi, others from the left who were in that Starmer campaign, uh, Simon Fletcher, who was Corbyn's chief yes. of staff, all in there. Right, here's what we suggest you, you, main, you, you maintain as a kind of core. And it was this, economic justice, social justice, climate. So climate justice, social justice, economic justice. And we would have added racial justice yes. uh, with, with the emergence of Black Lives Matter. Um, 
but that isn't how it, how that isn't what he wanted. What he wanted was a set of abstract principles, and then the pledges. And the pledges were the the concrete result, of, above all, of Simon Fletcher and others who'd worked with, with from within that that ex Corbynite world. The pledges were the the the, the result of pressure from the left on Keir. Yes. But we always knew that there was. It's not that there is no Starmerism. That there's no Starmer machine. There's no Starmer network. There's no group of people. Um, as a very loose group of people, I'd say Steve Reed, George Gould, the uh, leader of Camden Council, a few yeah. lawyers who are his friends. But there isn't a, a Starmer network in the Labour movement. And so from the get-go, he was reliant on two networks. One, the sort of Remain Left network, so like me and other Europeans yeah. possible, who, who didn't vote him, support him, um, than the right. Who backed Lisa Nandy. Yeah, but not then... I think what happened is during his campaign, the right moved in on on him. That was very clear, yes. and that, that, that we were pushing back. But that's fine because that's what the idea was. He is a candidate that unites the party and allows it to be an alliance. But then, once he's in power, and what did he do? He appoints Le- he appoints Re- Rebecca to a, a senior post. He appoints and Andy Macdonald, who just left. He was yes. still in. Uh, Corbyn is still in the party. Um, he does a good thing. He sorts the EHRC problem, which again most people on the left don't realise was an existential problem. Yes. In an alternative world of a left leadership that was going gangbusters to defend Corbynism, the, Keir did many things during the EHRC investigation that preempted the finding of institutional racism, and that, that's there in the report. Then. He, he also headed off another problem. If the EHRC had been harsher than they could have been, and if its recommendations had been what they recommended plus more, there could have been a wing of the party which could have led the party that said, we're not doing it. And at that point, the scenario opens up of class actions against the party by justifiably uh, outraged Jewish members. Which, uh, And I heard these terms used by lawyers at the time in HQ, which bankrupt the Labour Party. So you have to realise what Keir did. That being said, I think what the outcome is, the right moved in after he became, you know, the left kamikaze themselves out of the, one by one, out of the shadow cabinet. Mm. The right created the conditions for that by holding pointless uh, whipped votes on ridiculous amendments or third readings, second readings of, of, of bills. End result, no left in the shadow cabinet. With the balance moves towards the right, and then, because, it, because COVID's coming along and everybody's panicking because it's not working, they turn to the Blairites, who are the only people who embody that muscle memory of having been in power. So that's why Mandelson is there, because Mandelson is, you know, whatever you think about him, he is a professional operator. He, in his Rolodex will be people who can solve problems for you. Mm. Um, perhaps not in the way we would like, but, but that's it. I don't have a Rolodex where I can call up you know, ex-presidents of France or, you know, Joe Biden. Um, um, and so the rights moved in. And what the, the result is, um, the left is furious, dislocated, uh, not in the alliance. Um, and the right are not happy because Kia will not go down the route of uh, the, the rights politics. And let's be clear what the rights politics are, anti-immigration. You know, really anti-immigration, pro, you know, as one Labour MP said, excellent use of the baton in the Bristol riots by riot police. 
he will not go down that route. He will also not go down the route of transphobia. It's quite clear that, that, that I don't know what you think. Well, whatever bets is hedged on it, in the language is used, the invitation from Rosie Duffield and co. is to go 100% down that route. So, look, I, I think um, everything's a work in progress. This, the progress for this project, I think, has stopped, um, and it needs to be restarted. And I'm, I, I've, I have got some good, some kind of, I've got some, pos there, is, there are positive things coming out of the conference, mainly what the membership have achieved. But, but I think whether he's leader or not, whether there's a challenge to him or not, whether he packs it in, if his personal ratings don't improve, you, the, the problem is not yet solved of creating the alliance. I think you said a lot there, some Sorry. of which we Sorry. agree with. Yeah, no, yeah. I know, because I think it's interesting to hear your opinion on it. But I have to say, as someone who, you know, completely sits with you, Laura Parker, Tom Cabassi, I think he's, I think he's not alone not capable of doing the job of being a good leader of the Labour Party and a potential Prime Minister, which is what I think we are looking for, but he doesn't even have the competence of the right of that, that Peter Mandelson would bring, and you know, I'm, I've worked with him, I don't necessarily agree with anything or everything he says, but the man can get something done if you ask him to get it done and if he feels like he needs to get it done. Mm. And I don't, so I feel like he's got the, at the minute, and we've said this a lot, he, he sits on the fence so much that his arse must be sore because on one side he's selling, he's selling us out, on the other side he's not delivering. Mm. So I think he's, uh, in the process of bringing people together, he's failed 100% of the time. But, and I hope tomorrow, yeah. I, what I thought was quite interesting, and I will say this, is Rachel Reeves' speech yesterday, who I thought was going to be a real right-wing shadow chancellor to be a chancellor, was actually really impressive yeah. and brought a lot of the Green New Deal in, which I thought was really, really good. And I didn't see that coming, to be quite honest with mm. you. Um, and I hope hit tomorrow, he addresses the question, what is Starmerism? And I hope we can actually just see, you know, not Piers Morgan crying on a sofa, but like, you know, will the real Keir Starmer stand yep. up? Because I'd love to know who he is. Right, well, Luke, the, 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 let's unpack that then. I mean, <clears throat> I wasn't surprised by uh, Rachel's uh, thing, or I, didn't, I wasn't party to the, to the exact details of it, but it was clear that was coming because from conversations I've had with front benchers, they, and, and this is also true of the right, it's true of the, of the, the old right, you know, there's a plenty of old right-wingers in the, in the, in the, on the front bench, not Blairites. They understand that not only that the activist base is still left-wing, mm. and they often ask me, what do the left want? And which is one of the big problems. The left doesn't know what it wants. The left's divided over things like Brexit and all numerous other things, yes. social, cultural things. It, not only that, it doesn't. It, it hasn't got. It's not sufficiently bought into the project to even answer the question. What do you want in return for what? In return for supporting, uh, you know, the Labour Party at the next election is the, mm. is the answer. Um, so, but I do get asked that, and when I when I when I am asked it, I say one thing: the Green New Deal, uh, and and a massive program of investment, because that is the way that we can bring Lisa Nandy and her voters. We don't want to hear the words green or New Deal, but they want to hear the words job, Wigan, and uh, not on 12k a year. Um, we can bring her in, we can go to Stroud, and we can say to those 3,000 voters who put a Tory in power yes. uh, by voting for Molly Scott Cato, yes. well, do you want 224 billion or not? And I can tell you that the front bench know there is a danger that there will be many more Molly Scott Catos at the next election mm. and, and many more Green rebellions against Labour unless they deliver on, on the Green New Deal. So I think 
you know, I think so what, what frustrates me, these the two lads came up to me yesterday who were new first-time delegates from a right-wing CLP. Mm. And they were good people. And they said, we can't, Paul, can't we, tell us what's going on. We can't understand. When Rachel said, we're going to spend basically as much as John McDonnell pledged, yep. uh, and, and all these left-wing delegates around were, like folded their arms and started shaking their heads. And going, oh, no, no, no. And I said, they said, what's that about? I said, it's denial. Yes. You know, you're in denial. Um, they couldn't believe that it had happened. But the reason that it's happened is no, nothing to do with... I mean, it's partly to do with their pressure, partly, sadly, to do with the pressure of the Greens, uh, which... Every well, we, we were actually watching the Green leadership election really closely. That's yeah, oh, let's come to that. Yeah. Which I think is interesting. Yeah. So, but the uh, pressure of the Greens is they've taken seats in Sheffield, they've taken seats in Bristol, off left-wing, very good, socially liberal Labour, mm -hmm. Labour councils, and, we, you, and Strode itself, we run as a rainbow alliance. Um, so, so they... Although the funny story is that Starmer went to Stroud, didn't tell the CLP he was coming, and didn't tell I've, the councillors he was coming. I've heard this. I've heard this from at least five different CLPs yeah, other and, than Stroud, and, and, and it has really upset a lot yeah, of people, which but, comes back to my earlier point of, if you can't do the basics right, yeah, like absolutely. people, but, how on earth are you going to be the problem? But he rocks up in Stroud, and the, the local press said, what do you think about rainbow alliances? And he said, well, we're totally against them. And they said, but yeah, but Stroud Council is run by a Labour alliance, but you lead. Yes. I mean, so it's like, dough, you know, uh, so, so, so look, they've delivered the one part of the substance of Green New Deal, although I worry about it in this, I'm sort of get dweeby. What my worry is, is that Rachel clearly believes there's 174 billion a year to be got in, in tax rebates. So that is changing the tax system. I'm not sure about that, um, but it's, very, it's highly convenient because, um, if there's only 28 billion a year to be got through tax rebates, it saves having to borrow to invest. I would like to be clearer that, just like Joe Biden, we borrow to invest, and if necessary, we get the central bank to support that lending. Um, that is the way you're going to do Green New Deal, because 28 billion is not enough. Also, the other problem is the microeconomics or the supply side economics of it is not radical enough. We need, we're in the middle of an energy crisis, we need a national energy system tomorrow. We need uh, nationalize everything sink the goddamn you know energy companies including their shareholders which probably includes me via my pension sink them compensate them if necessary get hold of the infrastructure and decarbonize it as rapidly as possible give everybody who's buying a car a little check that says you know you want to buy a car right okay well if you buy an electric one there's 10 grand difference between most electric models mm. and, and non-electric non there's the 10 grand just buy an electric one uh, forget 2030 start now um, that's what we need to do and I'm not sure whatever Rachel Reeves has done on the money side I'm not sure Labour see Ed Miliband probably does have the you know, he's very cautious he probably does have in, in, in his mind some of those ideas but I'm not sure what, what they're but he was cautious Mil yeah. Miliband was cautious and now, and now ever since the lost election and it was like oh here, here is Ed Miliband actually walked yeah. in and said real oh hello and like oh nice yeah, exactly. and, the same, and, think, and the same thing is happening and the same thing is happening with Keir and you said earlier about the transphobia thing and I think it's very similar deal with the problem head on before it grows and grows and grows and grows and becomes something that you can't even slightly control and just, yeah. just and people yeah. I think as well people would respect if you just put a minor like 
I am Keir Starmer, this is what I believe, and if you don't like it, I'm really sorry, I'll talk to you, but this is where I am. Yeah. Like, and, and well, I'll be inclusive, and I'll chat, and blah, 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 but this is, I, like, this, I, this is, is who I am, and this is what I believe, believe. Yeah. and we're going into the general election believing this. Yeah. Well, he, get on board, yeah. or get out of the way. I think, and it's transphobia is a great example, dealing with the young people, I think, is another example yeah. of that, not failing yeah. to do that yeah. completely. Yeah. The green thing, I think... Well, let, well let's, 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 go to the heart of, let's go to the heart of the problem. The, the left absents itself from this, uh, or it gives itself uh, completely Potemkin answers. You know, there were these villages in Russia, Potemkin villages, that they used to take the Tsar to show that the peasants were all right, but they, just, they were doll's houses, they'd been set up. So when we say a Potemkin kind of village, I mean, parts of the left live in a Potemkin village, where if, if only we were more radical... The i.e. on economics, the entire you know Tory voting, uh, UKIP pro UKIP BXP migrant hating uh, white elderly working class would come to us. That's so so that's that absolves you from considering the problem, which is what is driving Starmer. Uh, and, and I don't agree with his solutions, but it is what drives them. What drives them is they need to win 60 seats in the red wall back in two years' time, mm. and so. You know, they know, and I think the polling evidence absolutely supports this, that the only way they're going to break through concomitantly in places like Letchworth or East Sussex is it'll take decades, right? You might get a few of the blue wall seats, but there is no blue wall route to power. The only route to power, even discarding Scotland or even keeping Scotland at one side, is Red Wall. What do Red Wall voters say? What do they what they A, they are, they are dividing. Yes. Um, my experience, you went up to Lee. Uh, oh, several from. times, yeah. So we, I've travelled a lot. And I think, and what annoys me is people say the Red Bull seat, like it's one man yeah. sitting in the middle yeah. of the yeah. field and he, and he likes beer and he goes to the pub. And it's like, well, no, actually, the Red Bull is, you know, there's black and brown bricks, there's young people, there's this, there's yeah. that. Let's, and they all have different opinions. Let's look at the anatomy of Lee, right? So it was Labour Tory, a few Lib Dems when I was a kid. Now it's Tory um, for the first time in history. Um, and yeah, work class Tories. And um, they hate Labour, the elderly people. Um, they hated Corbyn. Uh, the MP, Joe Platt, couldn't campaign. That's why she didn't win, because she wouldn't appear in public. And I understand why, cause, because she feared verbal violence, which was threatened against her all the time by these absolute maniacs. It's not surprising. So, surprising. Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 you know, fine. And I hope we can get it back. Uh, I hope we can get it back. So what are the activists doing now? What are the people who run out of their houses and in their slippers saying, we love January Corbyn, give me a leaflet, I'm coming with you. What are they doing? They're trying to build community solidarity. They're having Lee Pride days, in which word pride doesn't mean gay pride, it just means pride in your city. It can include, obviously, LGBT people included. They're, they're doing community workshops. They're reviving old spaces as art centres. There's a really good young working-class men's movement in Lee uh, discussing male toxic, toxic masculinity. All of that is going on. But what is its aim? Its aim is to say to the elderly old miner in the pub at lunchtime, banging on a table about migrants and how they shouldn't be here, that we are human. Listen to us because we can care about what you think. What it isn't saying is, and we have the following radical economic program for you, because they're not listening. And I think Starmer's chief, new chief of staff, um, who I think and hope is better than his old chief of staff, is a, above all a pollster. And she will know in, this is Deborah Mattison. Yeah, Deborah yeah. Mattison, in uh, minute detail whether that's changing. 
Until it does, they've got this huge moral argument inside the party. The only way we win these places are by a move to the right, because that's what the voters want. Actually, it's not even the right. If you look at um, Paula Surridge's work, Paula Surridge, at the, uh, I think at Bristol, sociologist, she, she, she looks at the, uh, the way social attitudes change. And the, the, the short version is this. If you imagine a, a diagram where there's a cross running through, the, just uh, like a, the England flag, Okay, and everything to the everything to, to the left of it is economically left wing, and everything towards the bottom of it is is socially liberal, i.e., pro LGBT, pro, you know, feminist, etc. The voters we need to win are not on the other side of the flag. There are almost no voters on the extreme economic right, and and there are a lot of voters on the extreme social right, i.e., they hate migrants and the rest of it, mm. but they're not a majority. There are a ton of people who sit exactly in the middle, right in the middle of the cross, on both economics and cultural values, but they just don't vote Labour. So the, the, the Starmer's advisors are on really strong ground when they say, if you want power, if you want to even do any of this Green New Deal stuff, guys, you've just got to give us the permission to address those voters. Now, my big problem with him is I don't think you do that without policy. I don't think you do it without persuasion and, re and relate relatability. And it, a lot of that comes down to him. He has not worked on communicating with working class people. And some people can't. And he has to decide whether he ever can. Uh, you know, Ed Miliband could. Do you think couldn't. he will lead us into the next general election? Um, we, we were just been, we've been around conference and a lot of people have said to us, like, we think it's an unofficial hustings for the next leadership contest. Well, it, it obviously is that, but there are different timescales. Andy Burnham can't get into the Commons before before 2024. Sadiq Khan is said to be thinking of a swap with another Labour MP to to become a, to swap constituencies. Or good luck with that. But you know, uh, so Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham both thinking about it. I heard Rachel's speech yesterday, and for the first time, I thought, fucking hell, you know, she's yes, quite a good speaker. Too. She can I she can too. speak. No, she's yeah. on the right of the party. Uh, you know, her, she's written a biography of a kind of a woman called Alice Bacon, Hammer of the Trots. So you know, we know where Rachel's coming from on 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 the left issues. But th there are all kinds of people to the right of oh, and Andy Burnham's not to the right of Kia. He's just a different kind of centre left. Um, the left, who have we got? You know, Nadia Whitson. I think it's the one person. Well, Nadia, you know, would be. And it's unfair on her because she is literally my age. So I, I feel I like know. it doesn't yeah. bring a lot on a woman. Like, yeah. let's, let's be real. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think right in the future. But you know, um, actually, if you were to let's be brutally honest about about Nadia, she, uh, if you look at the, her position in the in the in the PLP, is actually a, in a faction of one inside the social in the socialist campaign group. There's a kind of Remainer faction around around. Um, Clive Lewis, and there's a kind of Lexit faction around Ian, Ian Lavery and, uh, and, and John Trickett. And I think Nadia's kind of trapped in the middle of it. Not that because she's in favour of Lexit, but, but she, she's very much her own woman. And I, I, you know, I've worked with her, I've, I've worked with her team a little bit, and I think that she would be a brilliant leader when we know what, she, what, she's, what she's capable of. Uh, everybody can fall between betwixt cup and lip. But look, the, the, the real problem is the left haven't got a, a, a similar figurehead, which is why all this Starmer Out stuff, you know, coming from Navarra Media, and now Owen Jones is now on to the Starmer Out, I just keep saying to them, in order to do what? In order to achieve what? Because it might be that you end up with someone to the right of Keir, and what does that mean being to the right of Keir? It means actually agreeing with Rosie Duffield. It means, uh, you know, it, it, or, or 
it means agreeing with Mandelson, who says we have to drop stuff like 15 pound minimum wage. You know, the re 15 pound minimum wage is contested because Mandelson's saying, no, we need to attract the bosses. We need, it's not the right-wing fucking workers in Lee he's worried about. He wants the chair of the CBI to be happy with what Labour policy is. Um, so I, I just say, you know, you asked me, do I think he will lead Labour into the next election? I think it's 50-50, no more. Uh, because if, he, if the polls don't move for him fairly quickly in a, in a winter of crisis, and after a conference where he's teed up a very big, actually, set of pledges, yes. there's a decent set of pledges, and then the membership have loaded more onto them that he doesn't want. Yes. Well, you know, we'll see. By Christmas, you have to say, and you know, you'd have to take a view, if this is not working by Christmas against Boris Johnson, would it even work against Rishi Sunak? Because we're also facing an enemy that's a learning enemy. Um, well, apart from that, we're not really doing anything, so that's quite... Everything's going really well in Labour, apart from that slight problem. Yeah. I, because we've only got a limited time with you, I'd yeah. quite like to mention uh, your new book, Dustin. Yeah. Um, so it is, um, How to Stop Fascism, History, Ideology and Resistance. Why did you write that book, and why should people read it? What, what are the lessons that you, you try to put across in, well, in the book? Well, OK. When Trump came to power, what we were thought we were dealing with was the, the zenith of right-wing populism. So right-wing populism has been marching through the developed world, you know, so Viktor Orban, you know, Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro, always later than Trump, but he was coming. I thought, well, that's what Trumpism is. Actually, it turned out to be that's not what it is. It's just a staging post to the revival of actual fascism. And, and we could see that from Charlottesville, 2017. Um, and, in other words, what's happened to right-wing populism? We've, we've had a generation of political scientists and pollsters who used to... I mean, how many seminars have you sat in where people have gone, yeah, they're bastards, the right-wing populists, but at least they're channeling fascism. At least they're channeling it down a, a dead-end route. They can never win power through an election. They're not violent, so they absorb the violent, um, the violent instincts. Um, and, they're, you know, they're basically just giving that... that that group, that doomed group of, of elderly social conservatives somewhere to kind of live out their fantasies. Uh, in other words, as I say in the book, the idea was that right-wing populism was a firewall against fascism. Since Trump, the firewall is on fire. They've become the accelerator of fascism. And the book is about this. It's not about, here's, the, you know, here's this group, here's that group, how big are they, how many supporters have they got? You can read that on C-Rex, on, 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 on various... You know, uh, hope not hate, mm -hmm. NGOs yes. and, and research groups. It's about what is the theory? What is the theory that has begun to give structure to the prejudices of people? And and it, and it is. I mean, it, it's about. It's. It, I don't want to. I, I hate this wanky term, but political philosophy. It's a political philosophy book that says what is the political philosophy of fascism in its modern form, and how do we debunk it? And what what can we do to give structure to the left's activities to liberalism's activities because it's doomed it's fucked liberalism is just in a terrible mess and, and we, we need to help them you know uh, so what can we do and how can we understand the thought architecture of the modern fascism because as i argue in the book it's different than the thought architecture of classic nazism and mussolini fascism so you said a lot about the emergence of fascism and how it is whose job is it to stop fascism well, given that fascism, like, in its modern form, here's what fascism believes. A quick rundown. One, great replacement theory. 
migration is a form of genocide against the white race. Two, co-equal with the migrants as the enemy are feminists who have facilitated this by depressing the birth rate and suppressing you know, male supremacy. Right? So that's point two. Point three, and point two A, liberals and human rights lawyers, they're bastards as well. Yes. They're just, yeah, because they're, the, they're facilitating it as well. Yes. Point three, somebody planned this. Who planned it? Cultural Marxists. Cultural Marxists are the carriers of the disease of feminism, liberalism, and, white, and, and migrant white genocide, as it's called. Right? And that's an exact parallel with the way Jews were depicted in Nazi ideology, as carriers of Marxism. Okay? Point four, what do we do? We wait. We don't storm the parliament. And in fact, that's why January 6th was an aberration. We don't march on Rome. We don't march on Munich in a beer hall putsch. We wait because, and what we do in that waiting time is symbolic violence. We tell stories through violence, like at the Greek-Turkish border. The Greek-Turkish border clash in 2020, Swedish Democrats were there. Uh, Martin Selmer of the Generation Identity were there, Golden Dawn were there, people from all over Europe went. What were they doing? With, uh, with guns uh, and leaflets and the rest, some had guns, some had leaflets, they all stood in front of the cameras and they said, what they were saying was, when it happens, this is where it's going to start. And this is where you come, guys, uh, on the real moment when we're talking millions, not hundreds, of crossing the, this place. Because point five is what's coming is a global ethnic civil war. That's their, that's their, that's, that is the thought architecture of modern fascism. Now, what does it mean they do? They're, they're stuck in the prepping phase. So the Nordkreuz in Germany busted last year. 25 people arrested. They had a 25,000 strong death list. Where did they find the names? The police computers, because some of them were cops, right? So the prepping is what they're doing now. Climate change creates... Day X at some point in the 21st century. So you don't need to rush, you just wait and you educate people and you fill their minds with fucking QAnon bullshit. And so that's what we're dealing with. So to answer your question, everybody threatened by that. And who's threatened by that is liberalism and everybody who relies on a liberal democracy lawyers, teachers, and so, you know, biology teachers in Brazil sitting there giving the same lesson they've given for decades throughout their career, and suddenly some kid at the back, age 12, pops up and says, I've had enough of this Marxist rubbish. The world was created 2,000 years ago. And they go, where have you got this from? YouTube. And where's it? Who's, YouTube is filling their minds full of crap. We all, I think, the whole progressive half of humanity, and I hope it's more than half, has an interest in defeating fascism, but the people who are going to suffer first, I mean, the famous Pastor Neymuller, you know, uh, kind, of, um, kind of order of preference, uh, we know, you know, who they're going to put first into the gulag or the Guantanamo. And it's, uh, you know, to bring us back to Labour conference, it's everybody at TWT, starting with the transgender, you know, bi non-binary, and moving to the Marxists, and, and then moving on, you know, obviously the Jews. Well, I find this term, Mark, you use a lot of terms here. And I, Sorry. No, 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 in a great which I think is good. But my curiosity is, you know, that kid who learned things on social media, and I think social media maybe might have uh, ex accelerated fascism and might be doing that. In that process, you know, it's, it's using all these words like Marxism. But to be honest, in our generation, I don't think 90% I don't think 90 of under 30-year-olds could write a good definition for, for what Marxism is in two sentences or less. Good. 
because that means my same, next, that means my next book might sell some. And maybe the same with socialism, and maybe the <laughs> yeah. same as democratic right. socialism. I think there's a, like yeah. you use these words like yeah. saying you know what they mean because yeah, you're course, educated. Yeah. Absolutely. But I don't know. The only reason I'm doing it is because we are on a kind of political podcast. If no, I was doing course, it no, in no, a, course, in no, a bigger meeting, let me tell you then what I think Marxism is. It's a theory of human liberation. That's the first thing it is. It says that in our species being, that is, what our DNA, Marx didn't know about DNA, but he, he said, in, it, through the evolutionary process, by complete accident, a, a form, an animal has appeared that, that can col collaborate, imagine, uh, it's, it can do teamwork, imagination, and, and, and develop language, and therefore can change nature, right? And if it can change nature, it can change itself, and uh, through a process of economic development and human development, um, education and, 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 and flourishing, we can overthrow the hierarchical structures that we create in the process of creating history so that the, uh, the, the, the 40,000 years of hierarchy at some point gives way to another X thousand years of non-hierarchy. So that's what Marxism is as a, as a, as a project for me. There, it is also, I would say, a, a, a research project because it says what I've just said is a hypothesis. Yes. It might be true. It should be falsifiable, i.e. there should be, if people can bring evidence that says it's wrong, we need to change it and, or, or review it. And, and it, what it studies is the relationship between economics, technology and, and culture. That's above all what it, how, how you know, if you know, Marx jokingly said, you know, the plough gives you feudalism, the steam engine gives you capitalism. Um, another way of putting it, for, for the scientists among you might be, um, the steam engine also gives you thermodynamics, a form of science. Uh, but thermodynamics, in, say in the 1860s when it was invented, wasn't the last form of science. It's been superseded by other things. So Marxism studies social change. I mean, that's my best definition. No, I completely agree. The, the point I was making was that kid in that classroom who says, you're a Marxist. What? Like... What do they think Marxism... Like, I always find that fascinating when kids... When, when young people use terms of, like, huge political theory, and then you ask them, which I have, in the very few interactions I've actually had with people of the far-right fascism, they, they would accuse me of being a Marxist, and I'd say, yeah, and what is that? And they would come up with yeah, something. What is your problem with that? Yeah. No, but so, no, but no, but what do you define no, to but be the, that? They think because of because it. they go on a YouTube yeah. channel and get told something, and it's like, well, is that actually... Yeah. There's, like, a lot of big work, like, a lot of actual terms yeah, that actually absolutely. mean something in the mainstream in like a mainstream you know scientists and they have a definition and then the, the far right seems to have taken those uh, change those definitions and then use them on mass and there is a confusion as to what these very basic people some people say I, I once met someone who was like you dirty socialist and I was like and what is socialism <laughs> and they were like and then they just repeated it and I said okay but what is it? Yeah, absolutely. But what, what, what am I? Like, I don't mind. So just tell we need me. to we need to we need to realise um, because of the extreme youth of your team. I, I will say uh, that what what I would say to you is first of all, it all, it hasn't always been that way. That at a, the, 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 when they weren't, when the world wasn't collapsing, when climate change wasn't threatening chaos, you know, to say you were a Marxist was it was quite obvious what you generally were, you were a socialist who liked the idea of state ownership of, of the means of production and, um, and, and in their mind the worst thing about it is it, 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 it encouraged uniformity and conformity and you were also in favour of, favor of you know, abortion and divorce and, and because even the East European societies had abortion and divorce. So, so today it's become a mythologized other 
It's become, it, what does it mean? It means you're in favour of the destruction of Western society through social liberalism. That, uh, and, and this is the accusation against the so-called Frankfurt School of Social Research. Famous people Theodore Adorno and, and, uh, and well, Adorno and Hockheim, Horkheimer um, were the leaders. And the, the American far right believes that they hatched a plot to overthrow Western society because the proletariat's not strong enough. What you need is to, is to undermine marriage, undermine, undermine heterosexuality, undermine male power. And so social liberalism, which is all that, it, all that is, um, has been used to undermine the Western society. And a cultural Marxist is that. No, we, to, once you've explained that, and why has that suddenly appeared? Because we're in a time of crisis. If you understand fascism as I do, and this is, these are Enzo Traverso's words, an Italian leftist. It's a revolution against the revolution. It, uh, or to use the words that, I fit, I, uh, that for me sum up fascism, that, uh, were first used by Wilhelm Reich, a, a Freudian uh, Marxist. It's the fear of freedom triggered by a glimpse of freedom. And they can see freedom coming. Look at you two. Look at the people in this TWT. If a fascist looks at that, they think, fuck, that's freedom. You know, 2,000 people sitting in the field discussing non-binariness, or a non-binary person standing up and slagging off a, a, a white ex-coal miner from Newcastle, and nobody minds. That's free. That is fucking freedom. And they're terrified of it. And so now they have to have an other. And the other they always find is Marxism. Ernst Nolter, the German historian, who I quote a lot in the book, despite the fact he's a complete reactionary, and he became an apologist, actually, for Nazism, got it the most right, I think, when he his, his one-word answer to what is fascism, he says it is anti-Marxism. That's what it is. Without Marxism, without the revolution, without the threat of human freedom, there is no fascism. It doesn't need to exist. Once the possibility of human freedom is staring in your face and you don't like it, you have got to do something now, quick, before it happens. And that's the historic study of fascism that's in the middle part of my book is that about that. The current study of it should be focused in my mind about how do we how do we diffuse this fear of freedom so in our government at the minute we do have a lot of right-wing people i think pretty patel's a great example boris johnson when he wants to be can be quite on the right also quite on the left when he wants to be and there is an emergence i think especially in the conservatives some working class conservatives some young conservatives some people coming into politics from a right-wing perspective and i think some people do say Boris Johnson is a fascist. Do you agree with that? No, he's not. And neither was Trump. Uh, but what I'm trying to show in the book is that there are three political categories we're all quite used to. Authoritarian conservatism, that's what Johnson and Patel are. Okay? Then there's right-wing populism. Johnson certainly is a right-wing populist as well. And he has a team of right-wing populists drawn from Vote Leave. Mm. Uh, they hone their right-wing populism in Vote Leave. And he has members who are primarily UKIP BXP members. So they're right-wing populists as well. A fascist is to the right of that, is overtly anti-democratic, overtly violent usually, and, has, and, and prone to conspiracy theories like the ones we're used to. Mm. What has happened is that they have come to share a common architecture. I'll just give you an example of how it works. The outright Great Replacement says, migration is a form of genocide against us, the whites. More suppressed form of it says, taking the knee is an alien idea that has migrated into British football from abroad and needs to be opposed because it's challenging our identity as 
a white British footballing race. And if I see when you should, once you know how the structure of the of the of the argument works, you then look for the next bit of it. White people are oppressed by black people. That's what fascists think. What does the Sewell report say on education? White working class boys are oppressed by anti-racist strategies in education. So it's not that they're fascists. It, the fact is that they have the fascist thought architecture has taken over their mindset. That was certainly true of Trump. You look at the Republican Party, it's entirely immersed in that logic. Fox News now, nightly, Tucker Carlson, nightly says, we are being replaced. You know, 2017 Charlottesville, you will not replace us. 2021, the main right-wing news channel says they are replacing us. So that's, that's for me, the danger. That's conservatism, once they're out of power, I guarantee you, parts of the Conservative Party will veer rapidly towards the populist right and the fascist. You know, even today, in fact, the first re-registration of a fascist party, Britain yes. first been allowed to, to re-register. Well, you know, um, you know, you can't say my book's not relevant. Well, that's, I mean, and that's, and that's, I think, what I, I think our final question should be. You know, you speak, you've spoken a lot about global movements, people, you know, people on the right, mass organisation, and I think. What we at the left wing just very much try and do is say, actually, the individual is empowered and a young person can be empowered to actually achieve achieve quite a lot, even though there isn't often the infrastructure to be achieved, to, to achieve things. But it can be created and we can do things and actually people, young people on the whole are really underestimated. What, what can a young person who's listened to this now and has you know, been made aware of this huge problem that's coming, that's coming towards us, what can one young person or a couple of young people do to stop fascism and to make a real difference? Well, first of all, you, you're surrounded as young people by far-right influencers who are using the power of networks, cross-borders, to create like large shoals of fish that can achieve change. You know, they can take down docks, uh, harass, you know, change policies of, 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 of political parties, make uh, far-right uh, genocide advocates into millionaires. Right, that's the power of the network. Emulate that power. We, it belonged to us in 2011, the networked identity and the networked uh, social movement. We need to create networked social movement. And if there's just two of you in a bedroom, start like with a podcast or whatever. One of you in a bedroom, you can you can create a, a, a shoal of a shoal of political fish to to move around as you want them to go. So that's one. Two, fascism exists always on the street. Primary today exists primarily in the network but at certain points it has to descend to street level one one such point was the moment during the BLM uh, demos in 2020 when everybody decided to defend Winston Churchill I went uncover undercover on that demo uh, white uh, football lads alliance demo it was they were pathetic but it was scary. There were, you know, terrorist-inclined people in full mask, you know, people wearing the atom waffen outfits. There were Italian fascists there who were really serious, evil people. And there were these deluded football lads. Now, on that day, a very brave group of, of BLM supporters, uh, which, who, who are kind of subset and a, a, a pre-existing sort of, sort of Black Panther-type uh, kind of organisation or movement, went out to to counter-demonstrate. I think wisely, they counter-demonstrated at the other end of Whitehall, that they didn't try to hit 3,000 tanked-up white guys. It would have looked bad. But that didn't stop the tanked-up white guys trying to hit them. And what's the problem? There weren't enough of them. I, you know, there are, in the last few years, starting in 2018 with the free Tommy Robinson demos, 
all far-right demos have been too big to stop by direct action. That was not true uh, in the 70s, 80s and 90s when I was a member of ANL and Youth Against Racism and AFA, uh, anti-fascist action, uh, or supporter I should say. Um, it was not true then. We need numbers, so go, go out to the streets. But above all, you know, just what you can't do is, is, this is the message of my book, there is an anti-fascist ethos, don't keep it quiet. Trump wanted to make Antifa, as he calls it, uh, into a terrorist, he wanted to name Antifa as a terrorist organisation. What does that mean? It means that my book, if you get it out on the tube train, or on a, on a, on a metro train in, in America, you're going to have people looking at you saying, this guy's a fucking terrorist, you know, because he's against fascism. Well, we can't have that. We've got to re Our parents knew that being against fascism was a vital part of liberal democracy. We've got to revive the anti-fascist ethos. So I'd say just be, live an anti-fascist life. Just make it clear that you're not going to have white supremacy and, and you know, violent misogyny dictating uh, the cultural space around you. And that, that would be my sort of advice as a 61-year-old person. For them, it's harder. For us, it was easier. It was actually easier to smash the BNP, to smash the National Front. You know, even when we failed physically to drive them off the streets, because there were too many cops most times, they were terrified of us. If they'd have met us without the cops, that would have been the end of it. Um, uh, but today, that's not true. So it's harder for your generation. Well, it's been fascinating to speak to you. I hope so. Thank you so Bloody hell. Good. So good. I have a light on after that. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today, but it was really, really great of Paul to come and talk to us for so long and take time out of his busy schedule. If you're interested in what was said in this episode, Paul Mason has his book out currently in all UK good bookstores. Give, it, um, give him a follow, give him a like, and you know maybe read this book if you're interested in what he had to say and how we can stop fascism moving forward. If you like this podcast, um, we've got podcasts coming out throughout the conference season. We've got another one coming out later today. Um, if you want even more of a fill of the, the left-wingers, you can like our posts, retweet them so that we get more exposure. That would be absolutely fantastic. We're really grateful for all your support. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and email us if you're, you're stuck in the Stone Age. Keep whinging. Thank you, Paul, and we'll see you.